What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my guest is author, music critic, journalist, legend, Mr. David Wilde. Thank you very much. Finally, to get to meet you somewhat virtually, but uh, it's, it's an honor to have you on the show. Well, I tweeted and begged my way onto the show accidentally, and uh, I'm thrilled to be here. I really, I have blown through all the podcasts, so now I'm just sitting there waiting by the phone. And uh, right, yeah. and now, and now that I found out we're neighbors, I'll just sit outside your house waiting for you to tell me there's a new podcast, like the Pope when they signal there's a new Pope. Yeah, we'll do it once a week. You know, you know, <laughs> the um, you know, the thing is, like, you know, I I'm always honored because I I've gone through my entire career assuming nobody knows who I am. And 99.9% of the people, you know, 99.9% of the times, I'm right. So <laughs> the fact that you, like, you, 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 you reached out and said, hey, listen, I, I enjoyed the interview with Paul Stanley. It, it meant the world to me, being that you're, you're such a, such a world-class journalist and, and, and somebody I've admired for a long time. Well, thank you. So tell me, I, you know, I ask everybody the same question right off the bat. Because it doesn't matter if you're a journalist a guitar player, a musician, anybody who's in music, there's a certain point in one's life where you catch the catch catch the the music bug, so to speak. Where you're you're going, okay, you're just you know, the difference between a ca casual listener and then all of a sudden you're you're a passionate music fan. What was it, you know, you grew up in New Jersey, like when was that and did you come from a musical family? I come from a family that appreciated music but and and I so I they in they, they supported my passion, but no one, including me, had any talent in that area. And right. I think that that saved me because there are a lot of critics who are frustrated uh, guitar heroes or rock gods or front men. And I once had Steven Tyler say, you know what I like about you? I go, what's that? And he goes, you know, I'm the rock star. And that's 100 percent true. I. Uh, I had a I hosted a show on musician called Musicians on Bravo, which was an interview show. And my producer was a guy who was a really good guitar player. And the worst thing about being a really good guitar player is you think you're a great guitar player. And right. he thought I should always ask every musician very technical questions. And I've never come from that perspective. I I am a fan. In fact, uh, years ago I fell asleep on an American Airlines flight, woke up, and you know how they sometimes would have little like promos on the screen where they when you used to watch when you before the days of individual screens and there was a thing for an ad for a neil diamond box set and it had a i woke up to see the words with liner notes by noted musicologist david wilde and i i woke up and I, even in my you know being drowsy i knew i'm not only not a noted musicologist i'm not a musicologist i unlike you i know you're good but i know you're good because i feel what you play and right. So that's my background. Oh, but to answer your actual question, uh, the moment I think, and I had never really thought about this in many years, but uh, I don't know if you watched that series, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s on CNN. I'm all over that talking about music. And the first one that aired was the Beatles. It was on the British Invasion. And I'm the first person you see and then talking about the Beatles and then you see Tom Hanks. I like that company. But right. as a result of that, everyone thinks... I remember the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Mm -hmm. uh, and the truth is, my Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment was the Raspberries, <laughs> who, uh -huh. you know, doing Go All the Way, which was like, you know, power pop reheated Beatleism. But I saw that, and I don't even know if it was on the Midnight Special or, uh, you know, uh, 
Don Kirsch's rock concert, but seeing the Raspberries play Go All the Way, I think maybe in my 11-year-old mind or 10-year-old mind, going all the way was exciting. I didn't know what it involved, but I wanted to go all the way. And that kind of guitar power pop rock was sort of the, my gateway drug into music. So that was probably where it started. And then there were a whole series of things. Like my dad, even though he wasn't a musician, uh, I remember him playing Sinatra my whole life. And then years later, Sinatra asked me to write the liner notes for duets. And I mentioned my dad on that liner note. And my dad on his deathbed was telling the nurse that he was on the liner notes of a Sinatra record. So that Sinatra made a big impression in terms of what I love in vocalist. Uh, and he also took me to my first concert, which was the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, uh, a, you know, a great sort of right. bluegrassy group. Steve Martin was the opening act. I was like 10 at Carnegie Hall. And that's why all these years later, like, uh, you're not my first guitar god I spoke to today. I spoke to Brad Paisley, who, uh, our mutual friend, who I did the CMAs with forever. And the reason I, that happened is because I was, even though I was in New Jersey, I fell in love with country music at 12. Right. And that changed my life. Well, you know, it's, a, it's amazing because you mentioned the raspberries. And I spoke to Eddie Trunk um, the other day, and he mentioned the raspberries. And I, I know that he, which is interesting because he went much harder. I sort of stayed in the, uh, in the power pop zone more. Power pop, right. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, like I, I grew up on the East Coast. You're from New Jersey. Uh, you, you, went to, you, went to, you went to college at Cornell University um, in Ithaca, New York. I was born in Utica, New York. That's our, I would say Ithacas are much more well-educated brethren in the South. But um, one of the things is, like, did you purposely go, okay, I have this passion for music. I, you know, I want to be involved in it somehow. But ultimately, I don't play an instrument. So I want to go into I want to go into rock journalism or just go music journalism. Like when was that conscious decision? I go like I think I make a living at this. I actually think I'm I'm good good enough to to do something. I I never made a decision. I feel like the decision was made for me by the fact that I did it in middle school. I started a record column at, for my middle school paper. Uh, uh, I wrote uh, with another guy named David because there were a lot of. David's in those towns. Right. A lot of uh, uh, I did a thing called David and David picked the hits, and uh, uh, I did it in high school. Uh, my high school paper. I remember almost getting beaten up because I wrote something saying uh, I like the Ramones more than the Sex Pistols. Right. Then I went to Cornell. I was the arts editor reviewing, and you know Ithaca. You know that. You know all the bands. There was a whole music scene that people don't appreciate. Absolutely. It was a great place. In fact, there was a place called the Haunt. Where I would go, my first, you, yeah, my first reviews were John, you know, sneaking me in, and I interviewed Toots from Toots and the Maytals, and he, uh, I couldn't understand a word he said, so that was interesting training as a journalist. And then there were every, you know, every blues guitar god came through uh, Ithaca. I saw all of them, interviewed a lot of them. Uh, so at the, what happened at the end of college was, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer, and I didn't know what would happen. But a very lucky thing happened, and a uh, a writing professor, a visiting professor, my junior year was a guy named William Kennedy, who wrote. And that year, he published a book called Ironweed that won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. He became a big deal, and he, unlike anyone else at Cornell, thought I was a genius, and he recommended me to Esquire, 
I went right. to Esquire right out of college, and then Jan Wenner heard about a guy at Esquire who loved music and hired me away. So that was, I just got a series of lucky breaks. That's that's amazing. I, you know, John Peterson did more for yeah. the upstate New York blues scene. I I still have the poster of the the, the day I, I I played with Buddy Guy when I was thirteen, and you know it's like you make your your whole life is like really made when in those formative years. You know what do you? I I, I was watching something on you today, and I really thought it was really profound what you said. Like, I I got the interviews because I wasn't a douchebag <laughs> and, 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 and I was fair. And what makes a good journalist? Do you, I mean, cause there's certain, certain questions that are fair game and then there's certain ways of going about it that it, you're just kind of taking a shot maybe cause you know, because you want to puff up yourself and there's some journalists that do that. And, and uh, you just go really, what's, what's the point? You know, you're supposed to be objective. It's like, you know, when you started landing these big interviews, like you started to become friends and, you know, with people like Bob Dylan and, 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 you know, Prince, what was it like, you know, trying to, trying to kind of like walk that line, you know, between going, this is my friend and somebody I admire, but somebody I have to cover objectively. Well, it was really interesting for me because I started out in New York with Rolling Stone and then moving to LA was like a great, uh, like taking a bath in the, ethical issues that a journalist faces. And truth be told, I am not sure I was ever a great journalist. I think I was a fair journalist. I think I was a knowledgeable journalist. I I, I don't know. Uh, I think what, but what I was lucky is that I treated people fairly just because of the way I was raised. And that has served me well because every artist I inter ever interviewed, I've ended up working for in different ways because now like what i do is mainly produce and write like say the grammys and something right, and right. it's very helpful because there are journal there are some journalists who just like to sort of rip and destroy people for sport who right. if they had to write uh, you know if i had ripped ll cool j when he walked in the first time as the host to work with me he'd go get me someone else but right. i had always you know I, I always at least try to, to treat people fairly and with respect. Uh, but half of it is also just if you have the passion for music, you know, I find a lot of times a lot of artists hate being interviewed by someone who has no idea who they are. And that's increasingly that happens because uh, it used to be a specialty. I think a lot of newspapers have gotten rid of the real musical journalist and now they send anybody to talk to anybody. Right. You know, I, I, I've always said, like, I, I remember having a, a conversation with a publicist one time because, you know, publicists now, they, they'll load you up with 15, 20, 30 things a day and you're on the phone constantly asking the same questions and you start vetting the interviews. You're like, you know, I could drive around the town with a megaphone in an old station wagon like the Blues Brothers and reach more people than I did in four hours worth of work. When you're, I mean, like, when you're writing for like Rolling Stone and you know in the Grammys and stuff like that, you know you're reaching a, a a large amount of people, and you know and tell take me through the process of having like writing for the Grammys where you have everyone from John Legend to Bob Dylan to you know the late great Prince and and all this this confluence of talent all all of which have their own people their own publicists like how do you where do you even start with something like that because that to me would be like it's everybody's got their own 
list of things that they will and will not do. It must be it must be a long, arduous process just to get to the point of even rehearsals. It helps, first of all, that I loving the artist. Sometimes you jump over hoops and sometimes it goes really easily. I'll give you an example. Like uh, a couple years ago, we had Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen on the Grammys, same show. Right. Uh, they happened to both be rehearsing in one day and sort of back to back. And the way it worked is it's staggered. You've been to a million rehearsals. You know what it's like. Right, but like right. Tom Hanks came in to do the intro for Springsteen. And I've written him this epic sort of intro because it was about not only was it setting up Bruce, it was Bruce introducing his tribute to Bob, uh, to Bob Seeger, uh, to Pete Seeger. So it was right, like right. there was yeah, a lot yeah. of explanation of who's Pete Seeger, you know, and why Bruce is so special. And I thought it was pretty good. Tom Hanks, who I've worked with a lot on that 60s, 70s, 80s thing and charity events. And the he was the uh, the first speaker on the Tribute to Heroes, which was that uh, event that sort of kickstarted my career as a TV writer. So I have a long relationship with him. He came in, you know, in Staples Center, read it to an empty arena. He said, this is great. I'm happy. He left. Bruce comes in, sound checks a little. And then he looks at the intro. He goes, let me see the intro. And he looked at it and he goes, I can't live up to this. I went, what? He goes, it's two paragraphs. Pick one. And I'm right. like, uh, so I literally had to condense, send it to Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks approved it, fortunately. And then Bob Dylan is the next up. And John Mayer is introducing him. And right, just, right. and that was, because it's Bob Dylan, it's almost, it, especially with those guys back to back, that was a very simple intro. Like, And now... You know the, the the template for all or whatever it was the originator, right, right, right. Uh, and then uh, John Mayer says, "Okay, this is good." Bob Dylan walks in. He goes, "David, give me a little more." <laughs> it's like <laughs> so. In essence, I feel like I've become uh, uh, a Jewish fine tailor for all my heroes, like right. what they want. Uh, and listen, some people are just, uh, but it's always like the. The point is, as opposed to me talking so much now, is you have to listen. Like uh, LL Cool J, the first time he hosted the Grammys uh, was the year that Whitney Houston died the night before. Right, and right. I had to rewrite an intro for him, completely a whole new setup. And he'd already rehearsed. And I sent it to him. And he never, he was always easy and the best, a great guy. But he goes, uh, David, I think I need to say a prayer. And I went, LL, I'm a Jew. I don't write a lot of prayers. So right, right. you tell me. You tell me what you think a prayer would say, and I'll, you know, I'll make it secular enough to get on CBS, uh, right. which is what happened. And that ended up being like a famous moment in Grammy history. Uh, right. But it's right. you have to listen because one of the as a the reason I think I maybe wasn't a great journalist is it took me a while to find exactly my own voice. But as a writer, I've I've been able to have this house in a backyard and uh, put my kids through college because I can write for other voices. So right, I'm not, right. I'm not like, uh, so maybe, you know, I'm more like uh, a songwriter than I am like a rock star. Clearly I'm not a rock star. And you're able to, you're able to, you know, take a specific artist and, and write it in what you would think they would say only in a truncated, eloquent way. So it, the, the, the show stays on time and, and stuff like that. Have you ever written anything for someone who didn't want to rehearse it, came in, read it straight off the teleprompter and said, who wrote this? <laughs> and um, it, was like, it, it was like, you know, like, like why, why did I have to read that? Did, did ever, something like that ever happen? Oh, 
I, I've had 20 years of stuff like that happening. Uh, the We call it, uh, I mean, there's all sorts of people. There's people like Queen Latifah once hosted the Grammys and literally came off a plane from Poland where she was filming a movie. Right. She looked at the first thing she was going to say as she was walking on stage and said, like in a whole monologue, there was one joke about Tim McGraw and Faith Hill and, you know, and I think something, it might have mentioned Faith being blonde. And she went, I saw Faith coming in. Her hair's dark, so change that. And then she just went out and killed it and read it. Some people are like that. Other people are like Brad Paisley and Carrie Underwood for the, for the you know, 11 years they were hosting the CMAs. We would meet with the executive producer eight times and, and we'd spend the last week together. And eventually, like, I include, we included them as writers because it was such a mind meld. So there's a million different ways. Oh, but I have had the worst thing is uh, who's the actor, the bald actor from uh, 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 Fast and Furious? Um, Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel. Okay. We call it the Vin Diesel in writing circles. The worst right. is when they, uh, they come in, and it was actually him with uh, uh, Mark Wahlberg, who I like very much. But one MTV Awards years ago, they walked in, and this is what you don't want to happen. They go, we don't want to do whatever's written. We got our own idea. And then they go out and do their own idea and die a death. Oh, and, then they, yeah. and then they say, the, the, I don't mind if they die a death with their own thing. But then they, like, Vin Diesel was the first person to ever do it to me. He went, hey, I didn't write this shit. And it's like, right. oh, no, you did write this shit. I wrote entirely different shit. And, right. uh, you know, I'm not saying mine would have been that much better, but you take ownership of your shit. One, one of the things, you know, I, you know, I'm a guitar player and I and I do about five minutes, you know, of of monologue in the show. And as I try to make a little joke about the town and sometimes it goes over. And by the way, I mean, it's, it's a it's a friendly crowd. But when it bombs, I have the option of going, OK, and a three and a four. Let's go. <laughs> yes. There is no lonelier place in the world than being on stage with a bit that you think is going to kill and and just flat lines you know oh, i i listen i think i'm good at my job i think i work because i'm good at my job but i have been part of the worst oscars in history and the worst emmys in history so i know i i i know the stink of failure it may right, still be right. upon me some i think i can pick up the scent in the hills here uh i did the james franco and hathaway Oscars, the worst Oscars in history, and I have seen how painful it can be. I, my wife and my wife and I were discussing this the other day because I think she says I, 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 I make it even worse. But I, after that Oscars, I called her uh, at home. I said, like, she says I said that wasn't so bad, was it? I believe I said we'll survive this, right? To which she said, I don't know. <laughs> you know it was that bad. Did you know going into it that that it, you could be witnessing a train wreck or did it all good intentions and planning just derail from the downbeat? How, how did it unfold? What unfolded was the minute we met with the two of them, it was clear he something. It was like you were on the worst train wreck date of all time between the cool stoner kid and the like prom queen who we thought was uncool, he right. wouldn't look at her. He literally would, he, there was, it was, and he was in some sort of performance art, you know, and listen, I'm, I like his work, but yeah. I, he was like, he, he went on the Jimmy Kimmel show when it was announced he was hosting and said, I'm going to be the worst host in history. And he lived up to it. Uh, 
and uh, he, and she was trying like like the like the prom queen like like the like the hardest working kid in school the uh, and she would her trying so hard and him not trying at all made her look crazier and it was we knew it was happening but there was there was no way to stop it. What about the Emmys? Which which Emmys? Was it was all of the reality hosts, and it was in that moment where reality TV was taking over television. Right. And what what the person who chose them didn't realize is when you have the Emmys, you have all these writers, producers who take themselves very seriously, like everyone in this in Hollywood does. And then the reality stars they don't necessarily respect. And then you put all of them on stage hosting. And that would have been bad enough and risky enough. But then uh, there was a movement, like I tried to write an opening monologue for them. Judd Apatow <laughs> tried to write, write an opening monologue for them. And they decided, no, we're gonna improv. We're, it's like, ah. so it's, it, we, we wanna just freeform this. And if you watch it, it was, it was the worst thing ever, uh, I, I still, I get chills because I had written, you know, the, it, not only, it was so bad that we had to, it was like not five minutes of bad, it went eight minutes over bad. So I had to go to like people who had worked out material they loved. Like Neil, I remember Neil Patrick Harris saying, Neil, I'm sorry, I got to cut your bit. And he went, you're cutting my bit right, for right. that shit? <laughs> right. It's, it's painful, painful stuff. Oh, you know, it's like it's it's I like to see those moments when like reality show performers or actors or whatever they are, uh, they start believing the hype <laughs> and they actually think they've put in the ten thousand dollars, you know, hours in showbiz. Right. You know? And it's a lot tougher than it looks. You know, it's like not everybody can do everything. Tell me your take on. Like musically, there's like always those groups that you go, this is amazing. And they never materialize. They, for some reason, give me two or three groups that you said when you, you know, you said to yourself, when I, I heard this record, I go, this is going to be the next big thing. This is going to explode, take over the music scene, and then just flatline and, and never heard from again. Well, it's clearly Bloodline. Ah, uh -huh, thank you. You did read. Thank you. <laughs> Clearly, Eric Gales. No, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's so many, and especially because I have a, uh, an absolute love for sort of that power pop thing. Like right. that genre has been dead before the Raspberries when I was a kid. Right. Uh, it's you know, but there's a million littered, uh, you know, th but there's a million. There's also like, uh, I'll tell you, like one that my wife and I were listening to on a car ride. Uh, one good thing about the pandemic is you can travel you know, the freeway pretty quickly sometimes. And we were blowing down the, the freeway, going to visit our parents and listening to a guy who's a good guitar player, played with Robert Plant as a player, but a singer songwriter. Do you remember, have you, have you ever heard of Francis Dunnery? I've heard of him. Like that's a guy, I'm like, this is one of my favorite records of all time. And you who are a great guitar player, you know, no one, no one knows the name anymore. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I put, you know, put in that category is my friend Terry Reed, who, oh, yeah. who wrote some of the like, like heart melting songs in the early seventies, and and bet on himself. You know, he turned down the New Yardbirds, he turned down 
Deep Purple and had a good solo career. And then it just, you know, and it's finally starting to get like this like resurgence. You know, do you find that like when an artist, because you deal with like top tier stuff, when you see an artist come through like a John Legend, do you notice that right off the bat or does it have to kind of gestate a little bit and, and go, oh, I remember hearing about this guy a few years ago and then all of a sudden it just explodes? Or is it one of those things within, within the industry you're going, this is just a, an inevitability. It's just going to take maybe like six months, eight months, he'll be the biggest thing in music, you know, or she'll be the biggest thing in music. You just whoever. Have you ever, you know, like what's the thought process there? I've had it both ways. John in particular, like he, I remember the first time I saw him, he was part of Kanye's ensemble on a performance at the Grammys. And I, and it's like, you knew he could play. Like you actually see like, okay, this is a real musician. He is an incredibly elegant, you know, eloquent, great guy. Uh, but that took me probably a couple of years to see the extent of his talent. Uh, but there's, there are cases where, yeah, like it's, it's instant. And uh, yeah, I, I, I very rarely, the more, actually, the thing I was interested in asking you is mm -hmm. like, what, it, like, I do remember, I'm so interested that you're working with Eric Gales because I was a journalist in that, I was at Rolling Stone already when he was the next great hope. And like, yeah. I, I love great players. Uh, I was actually my, I think one of the first covers I ever picked in Rolling Stone, because I went right out of college, I went Esquire to Rolling Stone yeah. and I became a music editor in two years. So yeah. I was this kid and I heard Robert Cray for the first time and put him on the cover of Rolling Stone. That was like my first call. It wasn't a successful one because it wasn't like a huge seller, but I'm still proud that I got like a blues player on the cover of Rolling Stone. You know, right. and but I remember Eric Gales when he emerged in Electra, at least when Electra had him. Right. Like I remember going, This guy's gonna happen. Uh and I I'm so happy that you're like that's what what's heartbreaking is when there's not the second coming or the third coming. Uh I'm so glad you're doing that. But bloodline, like what did you learn from being part of a thing that had buzz and hype and didn't materialize? I, I think one of the reasons why I'm sitting here right now with you is I was young enough to make all of the mistakes that would have killed a career if I was 20, 21, and 22. I was 14 and 15 and 16. So I had an opportunity when I was 19 to come into my own and almost zero out the mistakes. Now, Bloodline, we couldn't get out of our own way. We were a bunch of kids with a lot of ego and a lot of, lot of like directional issues. We also didn't have those pesky things called songs. We were a good, we were a good band, and EMI did their best to get us on the on at that point we called album oriented rock radio. But the you know the thing is you know with with a major label, once the once a thing peaks at like fourteen, back in 1992, you know what's going to happen, you know. And then the second single peaks at 38. There is no third single. There is no second record. You know, do you think that artist development is something that is a lost art now? Because now it's like for you to get signed, you got to have 70 million followers. I remember when when um, uh, my ex-girlfriend, she was like, do you know Sean Mendez follows you on Instagram? I go, 
what's a Sean Mendes? I looked, I, I looked this guy up. Like he's great. Yes. He's got enough followers to declare himself king of any country. <laughs> exactly. And you go, it comes out of nowhere. Like now I, it's following. I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure my wife would move to that country. Exactly. So, you know, it's like it's followers, it's social influence, it's in some case politics, it's this and it's this acting and it's this huge bundle where, you know, when I came up, it was it was like you, you built an organic following, you know, like, you know, what are the pros and cons to social media in the music business in 2020? Well, it's really interesting. My nephew is a big manager like partly because he was raised like he came to the grammys with me you know when his parents broke up he sort of was grew up coming to all these events with me and now he's managing some big stars who i i don't want to say but get it i don't know if he wants me to say but so i'm both a i i, I experienced that 90s 80 late 80s 90s music industry and right. i'm very connected obviously through TV shows and working with all the executives and artists, I still see it, but it's a different business. And actually, yeah. if I can ask you again, one thing about Bloodline, like I was fascinated when I was doing a little digging because I, I was one of those critics who got the record and all that and looked for the pesky songs. Uh, but if I, when I looked it up uh, on an, uh, reading an article, I didn't know that early on Phil Ramone was involved. Yeah, it was, and, uh, yeah. He was the first. He was the first producer I ever worked with when I was a kid, and he was involved with me when I was on a. Re, uh, it wasn't a. It was a, it was a. It was a news magazine called Real Life with Jane Pauley, and he discovered me. And I've been with the same manager since those times. So that's how I kind of knew Phil. And Phil produced duets, and that was my manager's father who put that all together, Elliot Wiseman. So I worked with Elliot Wiseman and Phil on that record, and. Exactly. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, but like to me, it's interesting because like I'm fascinated uh, when my wife and I were looking for houses in this area. We kept on looking at uh, our home had previously been rented, not owned by Lorna Luft, like, you know, the the, the do a Hollywood, you know. So there was a red ruby slipper right where I'm looking in my cabinet when I first came here right. and a bad Warhol print of her. Uh, every But every house we looked at was like Carol Burnett's daughter, p children of. You know, when you live in L.A., it's fascinating. And you being in that group, the one person who wasn't like an icon's offspring. Right. Uh, I, I thought that must have been because I I've gotten to work with and know like Jacob Dillonwell, who's handled it better than most. But right, what, right. Did that, what did that teach you about fame, about work ethic? I just I can imagine that, like, I don't know if like a, an almond kid necessarily had to, you know, do a paper delivery and, le and learn a work ethic like you did in Utica or I did in Tenafly. You know, I, I will say this. It made for awkward interviews, especially when the journalist did not understand, like, what my role was. You know, I was just this young guitar player. And and they would always, you know, go, they would talk to, basically they would talk to, to Aaron Davis first because he was Miles Davis, you know, and, and you know, Miles Davis's son. Then it would be Barry and then Robbie Krieger's son, Waylon. Then they get to me. And they're like, so whose son are you? I go, Len Bonamassa. He's standing over there. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, and still in high school. What it taught me was, and Bonnie Raitt reiterated this about seven years later, when I was about 20 years old, and I was invited to a Music Cares dinner in New York City. And I sat next to Bonnie Raitt. The, the greatest. The greatest. One of my favorite people on earth. 
and she was so nice. And she said, to, she says, like, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a blues guitar player. And we just got talking and I made some like joke just, you know, because whatever. And she goes, honey, I find in this business, you got to be good or good looking. And I said, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to start practicing. You know? <laughs> and that was it. I said, nobody's going to hand it to me. I'm going to have to go take it. And that was that was what I learned in Bloodline. Tell me, um, I'm interested to know, um, I posted a picture of Julio Iglesias with a bottle of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild and a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And you said, please remind me to tell you the Julio Iglesias story about like, like having a child on the same day or it was, it was something like that. Tell me, tell me that story. Okay, the story is, it's, a, it's like our lives. They're, you can't believe they happen, but they're true. And uh, so I get a call out of the blue at Rolling Stone office uh, saying, uh, David, this is Julio. Uh, and he didn't have to say the last name, and he didn't say the last name. He goes, I'm doing a documentary on tango music, and I want you to work with me. And I was like, Julio, that sounds fun. I think you have the wrong David Wilde because I don't know anything about tango music. Right. Uh, uh, I, I would, and, and I actually looked it up. I don't know if there was Google at that point, but I found out there's another David Wilde who worked with David Byrne who on some project on Brazilian music. I said, I think you want the other David Wilde. Right. And uh, um, uh, are you still there? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I lost you audio-wise. Um, in any case, he said... Uh, I said, I think, Julio, you have the wrong David Wilde. And he goes, I don't care. I want you. So I agreed to do this documentary. It was insane. It was also like that era where record companies, they didn't have a concept of budget. Just like whatever you wanted to do, you right. did. And so he built a like a tango hall in a soundstage, you know, in the valley. And uh, I were filming with a supermodel and Julio and a million dancers. And that was exactly the moment in my life after I got married. So this is like 25, it's a quarter century ago. We're about to have an anniversary. And uh, he said, uh, uh, he said, David, let's go for another few hours. And my wife called at that moment on some giant police phone or whatever we had at that time and said, we're going to have a baby, get home now. We right. got to we got to try now, and I she was willing to make whatever sacrifice was necessary to have a first child, and uh, so I had to go to Julio and say, Julio, I have to go. Uh, my wife wants to have a. I'm going to leave. Uh, I have to get home now, and he goes, uh, Okay, David, you go home and make a tango baby, and I will make a tango baby too, and we <laughs> both had nine months later, we both had kids on the same day. Wow. So, so I always think of my kids as tang the, uh, my first son is a tango baby. Oh, but Julio was the greatest, the greatest. He, you know, he is the great, you know, it's like one of those, it's one of those type of artists, like, you know, the Latin American Sinatra. Right. You know, and one of the things I've always wondered, like the worldwide appeal, sometimes people like Julio, like our stadium fillers in Brazil and Argentina and, and Europe and stuff like that. But it, it, it you know, he, he'll play a big arena or an amphitheater here, but it's not like this. It's, it's not 80,000. It's, it's eight to 12, 20,000 people. What do you think? Of, how hard is it to break into the, the, the U S market, you know? And then, you know, conversely, there are some people that kill it here. You go to Europe and they got 400 people. you like, like, what's, what do you think is odd or, or different 
bad word, odd, is, but different in the U.S. market versus the world. Julio was a pioneer in breaking America, and he did it in ways that were not even logical. Like putting him together with Willie Nelson, you know, for that crossover to all the girls I loved before. Great song, but why is Julio on it? And, you know, why are, uh, you know, are they, are the two guys bragging to each other? It wouldn't on paper work, but it, it somehow almost comedically worked. It was so crazy. And Julio had endless charm. You know, he was, and I, you know, I think, was that a picture on his plane that you had, I think, right? Yeah, it was his golf stream. Yeah. yeah. I traveled with him. He had a wine cellar on the plane. Like right. he lived in style. We went down to the Dominican Republic where it was like, uh, when I got to dinner, he goes, it was me, him, and whoever was the most famous designer in history. Like, uh, I can't, I don't know my designers clearly on the slot, but, uh, you know, it was us and 400 women and a table in the, on the beach. And, you know, it, it was ridiculous, but how he, I think he made it on charm, on sex appeal, because beauty is international. And he, you know, he's a beautiful, he's a beautiful guy in many ways. He's a, uh, I, I, I love the guy. He also, um, we went to a restaurant in Miami when we were filming something there. And uh, uh, I was at his house all day. It was 150 degrees and sweaty as it is in Miami. And uh, so he goes, we're going to go to dinner at uh, China Grill. It'll be elegant. And I go, well, I better shower for about two hours to become elegant and change. Right, right, and he right. went, no, David, you are a poet. You do not change. And so in like a bathing suit and a sweaty T-shirt, he walks me in because who's going to say no to Julio Iglesias? Not in Miami. Yeah. I also, but show how rigged he had in Miami. I remember outside he was with, he might have been with some girl who was not his girlfriend at that dinner. And <laughs> And some photographer tabloid came up with like old school, you know, paparazzi and someone in his securities took the camera, stepped on it and no one arrested us. You know, it was he had that town controlled. That's like some, that scene in The Godfather with Sonny Corleone, you know, you like they wrecked the camera and they, you know. Yes, it, it was very much like that. Tell me, we were talking off air. You you had a you had a you had an interview with a guitar god, and there was a story about like like I, I forget what you were saying about it, asking a question or, or was it was. Uh, it, I'm trying to think which. Oh, well, it may have been uh, the first time. Well, I have all sorts of. I think you you're you really were a lover of the British guitar gods, right? Yeah. yeah. So just uh, a few memories of those guys. One right. one. Uh, I was sent to interview, I was in England doing something else and said, do you want to interview Jimmy Page on the second Zeppelin box set? It was like, after they did the best of Zeppelin-ish box right. set, there was like the rest of Zeppelin box set. Right, so it was right. not as big a deal. And I went to interview him. And like any kid who grew up in the 70s, I worshiped, you know, worshiped him, but I didn't know him until then. And he was a total douchebag to me. Like yeah. nothing, I, nothing I said, he just was giving me a dirty look. And I was like, listen, if I had done something to offend you, right. sometimes you have to like mid course, correct on an interview. If something, if you get up to a bad start, it's like, did I, is there something? And he goes, I'm mad about the review. And I went, I'm thinking that I reviewed, did I trash Coverdale page? Did I say right. the firm sucked? You know, he went, no, the first Zeppelin review. And I went, Jimmy, I was seven. Right. 
And guess what? Rolling Stone was fucking wrong. Clearly, you're, right. you know, but he was, he just woke up that day mad about that. Uh, on the other hand, I've had the great, like the charm of Clapton I've gotten to see many times. Uh, the first time, I think I did, the first time I met him, I think I did a show at the White House with him. And Clapton was so cool. This is like the last weeks of the Clinton administration. And it was B.B. King, Clapton, uh, all, all the Fogarty, all these greats, Al Green, who I love. Uh, yeah. And But the Secret Service, I remember, didn't care about any of us because Garth Brooks was on the show. And all, it turns out Secret Service were all about, like, Garth Brooks. And so they... Uh, they left us all alone, and I remember talking to Clapton once, at, at, at like during a break, and he goes, "I got to take a pee. Walk over with me." And he peed on the White House, like he literally. He's like he was such a cool customer. He wasn't worried about being like uh, arrested, you know. Secret Service, you know, it's it's Clapton. Uh, I saw Mr. Baker pee- peeing outside of the 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 Sheridan Park Lane. Uh, in Hyde Park, one time after the Classic Rock Awards, I, I think it just goes into you know it's part of the it's part of the Brit culture, you know. Well, Ginger Baker seemed like, from what I've heard, I never met him, but he would have turned your way when he was doing it. So I I would I'd be f- fearful of, of Ginger. I had the uh, I had the honor. I've I've played music with every member of Cream separately. Mr. Clapton, Mr. Bruce, Mr. Baker, Mr. Baker being the last one, and everything you saw in the movie. That that beware, of Mr. Baker was basically playing out in front of all of us. You know, um, is it hard coming from a fan point of view and then having somebody that you really admire, um, well, for lack of a better term, just turn out to be a douchebag or just a, a bitter old coot? Is it is that hard to, as a fan? Because you know, like I said, you're a fan and you're you're passionate about music and you're like, oh man, I, I wish so and so would you know, not to name names, but I'm just wish it just be. Can you just be nice? You know, it's funny because I will put up with a certain amount of difficultness verging on being douchebag for genius. Like there's a story I won't. This podcast is not long enough. I have. But there's a half an hour Van Morrison putting me through hell story that I've told on many podcasts for anyone who wants to search that out. But I almost loved it because I love Van Morrison and I kind of love the fact that he. He not only wasn't kissing my ass, he was trying to kick my ass. And right. I love his music, so I was that was kind of a, a badge of honor that he put me through all of that. And he was so crazy, he thought we were friends. <laughs> he, he thought this was human interaction. Uh, but uh, what, what I find is I will put up with that for Van Morrison. When I won't is like when the Backstreet Boys jerked me around <laughs> on a cover story. I said, listen, guys. I've I've worked with three Beatles. They're all nice. So what's your fucking excuse? You're right. the Backstreet Boys. So I that's I will put up with a certain amount of difficult for talent. That's that, that's great. Tell me about the impact of Seinfeld and why it's still relevant and why is it still funny today? Because I I watched it when it was new and I watch it now and I go this is like the honeymooners. For our generation what what was it about seinfeld that was so special that just to this day it's it's classic television you know i mean tried and true yeah it's interesting what happened was uh when i moved out here in 91 it was in, like grunge happened and uh there was so much happening but one of the things that happened to me was because i was out here uh i was the west coast bureau chief at that point i'd been the music editor they would say 
like, okay, do this uh, actor, do this TV show. So I quickly became like a TV journalist and they would, they actually gave me a TV column. And at one point they would say, review all the new fall shows. And every year I would have to watch every show. And right. there was always one, <laughs> maybe that was good. So every year I would go, okay, this Seinfeld thing. I right. think this is good. Friends, I think this is pretty good. Raymond, good. Right. And uh, and I also like, yeah, Melrose Place because my wife was watching and I and so I started doing a lot of these cover stories. I did a book on Seinfeld. Uh, I think it's just it, it's really interesting if you do have kids and if they get older, like my kids think Seinfeld is exactly funny as I did. It's like it is it's not about style. It wasn't, you know, arguably friends had a little bit about the haircuts and the looks Seinfeld. It was purely about the wit and uh, uh, and yeah, and it just it's it's remarkable to me. I uh, I I fell into writing comedy a lot after that, and it's like I always use it as a lesson of uh, never go for the uh, like Seinfeld logically was too smart, too Jewish, too odd to be as big a hit as it was, but right. it simply it simply won on the merits, like right. uh, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I always say, it's in music, it's those pesky things called songs. <laughs> in comedy, it's those pesky things called jokes. Yes. Now, now, you can go up there and say a lot of offensive things. You can be shocking. You can do whatever. But the jokes got to hold up, you know. And, and it, tell me, what's the, what's the most rewarding part about writing, you know, books? You know, is it, is it the research like, cause you know, by the end of your, you know, your book writing experience, you're going to know way too much about a subject. You're going to wait, you know, way too much about Neil Diamond or Seinfeld or friends or like, or is it the fact that when it comes out, you know, that you've created a piece of history that's going to document this thing you're passionate about. I, the absolute, I'll be very honest with you. I, I was so thrilled when I got to do books early on and then I've hit the point where as a journalist, that was kind of part of the dream was writing books. But when I started becoming a TV writer, mainly, I have to say books are now too hard because I, I, the part I like is when it's on the bestseller list. Yeah. And the part I like is when I get a royalty check. Right. Uh, but truly, it's like you're almost always at some point with a book like you want to abandon ship. And like one of the things about TV projects that I love, and I've done like features a little bit and dot feature documentaries. Uh, uh, you know, um, I, I like at least with TV shows are my favorite because you'll have an intense two, three months focused on something and then you see it on air and then you move on. Uh, right. Books, especially because of if you're collaborating with people, like I've co like. Brad Paisley and I had as great an easy experience as anyone could. You know, we we hung out as we we already were friends, so we talked a lot. I wrote a draft of a book, he took it, made it much better, and we put a book out. But it's almost never like that. You know, it's like I've chased down. Uh, I will I, I will say, like trying to get CeeLo Green <laughs> to focus for a book. I made a hundred appointments, and he kept exactly two of them wow uh and and he had asked me to write the book but it was sort of like it was still like a, a you know 
chasing chasing him to get chasing Sila. Chasing yeah. Sila, which would have been a better book than the one we did. So um to to wrap up here, because we can go for three or four hours here, is can you name like you know like like I'm I'm trying to create that you you heard it first here. Um musically, what's on your radar? Who who's about to break and why? Well, who's about to break? It's interesting. I, I my headset from my journalism days, where I had to be obsessed with who's going to break, mm-hmm. it more is changed because I mainly, truthfully, am in producing network music shows. So right. it's not about. Uh, I'm. I, I think I have a very good ear for it. Like I remember being in Nashville many years ago and hearing the first single. Uh, called you know this Tim McGraw song by Taylor Swift and going, we should have her on the show, right. you know. And so it's like you have to be attuned to that moment, you know. But uh, I don't need to. I'm not a manager trying to sign talent before they're ready. Uh, and often it's about you know coming up with a. I think my job more often has been like I'll give you one of my favorite Grammy moments ever was when we did, uh, I think the first Grammy moment I contributed to was when um, uh, Joe Strummer from The Clash died. And uh, no one else in the Grammy office was a Clash fan. So I was like the kid. So I said, they said, what should we do? I said, we should get to London Calling. And I knew that uh, Bruce was a fan of The Clash. So I said, let's ask Bruce and Elvis Costello to represent that British sort of new wave punk moment and then how are we going to flesh out the band and i uh this guy dave grohl who was then you know still kind of young uh we got him and then it was me going like you know that guy in no doubt has a little bit of that sort of punk new wave bass part so let's get him and he was very grateful so it's like it's it's a little like I think A&R has gone out of the music industry, but into doing some of these events because you want to put together the old and the new and, uh, you know, Bruce and Steve Van Zandt with Dave Grohl. And that sort of becomes more what I have to be attuned to. When do you think live shows are going to come back? I, uh, it's like, when should they come back? (laughs) I don't know. I, uh, my kids went. My kids are both in college or out of the house now. So right. for the last two years, three years, I've gone back to going. I was going to three concerts a week, always. Okay. You know, and you know, I just fell back in love with it. But I don't know if I'm desperate to go into a club right now. Uh, right. So I, I, I don't think anyone like you know, you and I both know you are one of these artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I. Early on, it was like artists were like, listen, this will be two, three months, and I can support my band and crew f- through that, but we'll be back to something by the end of the year. Right. And now no one is saying that. Uh, and we're doing like unusual things. Like I sat in this backyard like uh, a week ago and filmed, you know, and consulted on filming a drive in movie that is going to be out with, you know, a uh, Blake Shelton and Gwen Stefani, you know, uh, people are doing that kind of thing. There's a million ways around it. Brad Paisley, our friend, did an actual concert, you know, live outside, you know, uh, and uh, and also did virtual things. But I don't know. I don't think it's going to be 
I hope that next summer I'm seeing shows. That's my hope. Yeah, I, I, I've been talking to a bunch of my friends, and some of them are still optimistic. We, well, you know, optimistic. They're going to say, "Well, we're, you know, we have dates on October." I go, I go, I like your optimism. I don't agree with it. Spring next year, I'm pessimistic. Summer, I'm semi-optimistic. Reality, spring 2022. It's going to have. It's it's going to be a two-year gap before you can go to places like the Troubadour and, you know, it, it, it's, you know, the bigger venues like the Ryman and stuff like that. I mean, you're sitting right next to each other, you know, and, and if not everybody's going to wear a mask and if there's if we're going to politicize the mass and whatever, it's going to set the music business back, especially in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the concert, uh, you know, format because it's just, it, it just, it doesn't, you can't guarantee everybody's safety. And like, why would you invite them, you know, for, for no reason to make them sick, you know, just. Yeah. And you saw there, the artists who wanted to rush right into it. And I, I understand the desperation. And I think you and I, like, you are a unique success story that you've built, you know, and every, like, you know, other artists are in awe of what you've done. Like, I'm telling you, like Brad Pacey not only said you're the best guitarist, you, he said you have the best collection of guitars and you're in such an amazing business success story that he looks up to. But with all that, no, but with all that being said, most artists living in L.A., you know, there's a lot of like the first time I ever I, I love comedy. I met Richard Pryor right before he died. And I remember going home going, why do I have a better house than Richard Pryor? And his 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 ex-wife, who was sort of helping, goes, don't worry, he bought mansions for every whore in Hollywood. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of artists who you think are rich, who three divorces later, four kids who they're supporting later, five kids, they're not rich. So, uh, you know, I'm that's why I'm so happy that, like, Music Cares, who I, you know, worked with, you know, they're helping but we're all going to have to help because I, I agree with you. I don't think it's I don't think it's anytime soon. And I'm dealing with it in TV production. I feel like it's like the stages of death. You know, every show is like we're going to do it in April and then we're going to postpone to October. And then every one of them, I'm now sitting going, OK, we have to find a different way to film it. And I'm asking, like, whether Brad has done it. I have, you know, uh, for a bunch of shows, you know, it's you're down to like finding alternate ways to to make the magic everybody has to everybody has to pivot david wilde thank you so much for joining us it's this is really an honor you know oh, no. like, I'm, I'm such a i'm such a fan thanks for being on live at nerdville you know because i know every, everybody's now a podcaster or a broadcaster i i'm just an idiot with a sign you know <laughs> well i'm an actual nerd so this is like a big deal and the fact that you had Dion on, like, the, I don't know, I've ever heard a podcast with Dion. You you started so cool, and now you've, look how far you've descended to me. Listen, I, I mean, I, I pinch myself, you know, and, and I just reach out to people, and, and they and they say yes, and, and it's, it's, it's just because it's fun, and I'm passionate about it, and, and if I wasn't a guitar player, I'd be a journalist. I, I'm naturally inquisitive. I love the art of journalism. I love, I love you know, I I love it. I love everything about it, and I and I love being able to document things. So again, thank you so much for uh, for, for for being on the show. Oh no, the honor was mine. I love I love the podcast, and I'm uh, except for this episode, I won't enjoy this one. But I, in general, I'm a big fan. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary David Wilde. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Live at Nerdville.